Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? Today's topic, 8% Judas. There's a saying that God has no grandchildren. A parent's faith does not necessarily cascade into children, but it certainly helps to see good examples and the power of the sacraments do imbue marks of faith in people, marks that remain with them forever. If you believe in baptism and confirmation in Catholic Church, there's marks that come on a person and they stick with them. And even if they don't believe in them right away, they are awakened and brought forth. They, could, they never leave a person. And there's no better gift for a person than baptism as this gift. Even if it's kept wrapped for many years, it, it never decays or withers. The treasure granted in the moment of baptism awaits the receiver's decision to open and accept the gift. It's like a gift sitting there under a tree for many years, untainted, like gold. It doesn't decay. We may teach our children about Jesus, and they may accept the gift, but their children, our grandchildren, will probably be beyond our reach. And if not given the gift, they may have to find faith by the breadcrumbs and signposts on their path in life, picking up the seeds of the word, or even a discover, discover a way to God on their own. Somehow, and rather amazingly, even grandchildren who are never taught about the construction worker from Nazareth can find their way to this treasure, even if no one even tells them about baptism or teaches them the faith. Grandchildren of no faith background can find this treasure because the secret is it can be found by anyone. If you walk enough of this earth and traverse enough experiences, and if you chase wealth or power or pleasure, you will eventually trip over this treasure at least once, probably multiple times, and your pride will find the uneven earth to trip on one way or another. It's almost like the sidewalk will rise up to trip you if you walk enough sidewalk. And I've had that happen when I'm out for runs, and I always hope no one's watching when that happens because it's pretty embarrassing. Whether or not you choose to buy the field like the parable of the man who stumbles and trips over the treasure in the field. He goes and sells everything he owns so that he can buy the field. Um, whether or not you will be filled with the joy like that happens to the person, that comes down to the individual. And it is a choice, but really faith is a gift. It really is. Like you don't just, you can't force it. It doesn't just, um, you don't, uh, you can't tell anyone that it's, it's just going to happen. You don't go to school and get it. Um, our intellect and free will will make for wonderful and sometimes awful companions on this journey. And if you're lucky, you get the gift of faith, but you, you got to ask for it too. A great mystery people have is how, how does the church continue through the ages as the many empires rise and fall around it? Hope fades in these earthly superpowers after about a hundred years, uh, but the church stands. It always is there. It withstands these assaults. It surges and it falters and it's persecuted. It retreats. It persists. It's restored. And even through all of this scandal, and we'll talk a little bit about that word, um, what seems impossible for it to remain, it, it, it is possible with God and it does remain. So for those who think we are fools to remain in the church, we, we can't explain it very well, but perhaps this will help a bit. We can never quit the church or Christianity 
because we know the words that the child like Peter admitted to Jesus. We know it's true. And I quote this like a broken record sometimes. But when Jesus asked, who do you, who do you say that I am? Um, and, you know, Jesus, Peter is admitting that he's the Messiah. And then Peter or Jesus talks some more about you have to eat his body um, in order to get to heaven. You have to drink his blood. And it's like this really, really difficult thing to hear. And people leave Jesus. So they start leaving him. And then Jesus says, are you going to leave me as well? And Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. To whom else would we turn? I know I've talked about that line before, that to who, where else would we go, Peter is saying. Like, where else are we going to go? So for those that believe God establishes church upon this rock, on Peter as the first bishop of Rome, and thus believe in the authority and interpretation of the church, then there's really no choice but to remain and to, to fight for it, to make it better, and to someday, um, you know, be on our own deathbed receiving the last rites, if God wills it. So the sacraments are real. They make the invisible things invisible. <laughs> invisible. They make the invisible things visible. The Eucharist is what we call the source and summit of the church. And partaking in that sacrifice, along with regular uh, reconciliation, it really makes Jesus come alive. Um, the Eucharist, if you, go to, if you go to Mass and you believe that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus, your experience will be very different than if you don't believe it. Um, so, you know, I can't quite ad uh, adopt the once saved, always saved kind of mantra uh, because I believe that the sacraments are real. And so if someone says, you know, have you been saved? I, I quote this, uh, Tim Staples is a guy um, where he says he's, he's being saved. It's an ongoing thing. And we should say, Yes, um, I am already saved, but I'm also being saved, and I have the hope that I will be saved. So, like the Apostle Paul, we're working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, with hopeful confidence in the promises of Christ. So, um, there's all kinds of biblical references um, in Corinthians and Romans and uh, Philippians. So of, of that actual comment, I have a link in here in, this, in, the, in the text. But if we're just saved by a one-time declaration, then the inevitable corruption and sin that follows is a problem. Um, one of the things Jesus says to someone is, you know, once sometimes you get cleaned up, you get your act together and all the devils leave a person um, and they go about over the watery regions of the earth. And once they go away for a while, they come back into the person and see that his life is all cleaned up and then they invite seven other devils to come in with them. And you can see that happen uh, with people, especially um, in recovery groups, you can see it because somebody gets uh, things in order, cleaned up for a while, and then they fall off and they go back to old habits and then it even gets worse. So that's, that's kind of what I think about there is that it's not like you're just um, this one moment in time where you were you were um, saved and that's it. You, you have to work at this. Like it's not a, it's like, I always say it's like fitness where the minute you stop, you start to atrophy and fall apart. Um, so, I mean, here's another one. Consider that Judas was chosen and perhaps even saved before he wasn't. And consider also that of the original 12 Christians, 8% of the apostles were Judas. 
So obviously uh, no person can be 8% of something, but 8% of the, of the apostles of the first Christians were Judas. So, and I believe, you know, this will always be the case. There's like 8% um, that, are, that are going to really fall back uh, away from it. And maybe more. Um, I was talking in one of the other episodes about the 10 lepers that Jesus heals and 10 of them are healed, but only one comes back. Only one is changed. So maybe only 10% of those lepers are saved. Um, I'd like to obviously believe that 11 of the original 12 apostles were saved. I mean, how else could it be? But 8% of the most Christian Christians of all time were 8% Judas. So, you know, and um, it's probably much higher for non-apostles because they were the first 12 chosen people who surely received high dosage grace. Uh, further, Jesus himself says that few will find the narrow gate, but many will find the wide path to destruction. So that line always strikes me because um, I think of the massive highways in our city and then you think of some exit ramp and there's like one exit ramp that you have to take or maybe it's a dirt road, whatever, off of that. Um, many will find the path to destruction. Not, not many will find their way to heaven or, or past the judgment. It's not many. So, um, you know, I, this, this goes way into like election and, and those kind of things. And um, I'm not theologian, obviously, but it, those lines, which I love because it, it's still something that I can think about um, without having a deep education on uh, atonement, salvation, election, those kind of things. But um, what he also adds was the most chilling line of all to me when he says that, all of those who call out his name will not be saved, but instead he will tell them, he will tell them in their particular judgment that the day we're judged, I never knew you. And so even if we are doing things in his name, even he says like casting out demons or, you know, healing people, we're preaching his name, he'll say, I never knew you. So it's not enough. I, I don't think you can read it and say it's enough to just declare faith and then not do God's will. And you can't just do it faking it either. You can't just do it for attention. Um, that's why, you know, you shouldn't probably start a podcast and a blog uh, declaring your faith because what's going to happen is you're going to start a bot podcast and a blog and then you're going to get there on Judgment Day and he's like, I hated your blog and your podcast. So, yeah, exactly, you know. I get it. I, I'm that's I, I think of that when he says, I never knew you. And so I, you know, this is this is in uh the gospels. I didn't make this up. He's he says, like you there's you have to do my will, be baptized, believe, do my will. And I still might say, I never knew you. So whew, okay. So we must walk with him all the days of our life, really to the end. And one of another great saying is by your endurance you will gain your soul. Now, when I first read, by your endurance, you will gain your soul, um, I was kind of into this endurance sport stuff, um, you know, triathlons or marathons, whatever. And I like, ooh, the word endurance, isn't that great? By your endurance, you will gain your soul. Well, he's not talking about physical endurance. He's talking about your faith, your spiritual uh, state all the way to the end. You got to hold on to it. You got to pray for God's will to be done every day, not your own. Um, the failure of Christians to live up to the high standards set forth by Jesus and the saints, it, it makes it remarkably easy for modern people to doubt or to laugh at followers of Jesus 
because we we create scandal quite naturally like we create scandal just by talking about it and then falling on our face um it's like watching someone go out in the winter on glare ice in minnesota on their driveway or go try to get the mail and you're sitting in your warm house watching them slip around and eventually they wipe out and you just can't help but laugh um the church takes a beating by its own failings. It's like the, the, we're all out there slipping around. So one person is funny on the ice, but imagine a billion. Um, in reality, Christians really, they have been hated from the outset, obviously. Um, the first, I mean, Jesus was hated. So, um, and then from the first day, the word began to spread on Pentecost that was hated. And St. Paul, of course, came rounding them up and killing people and whatnot. And, um, but surely... I think on, on if 3,000 people converted on the first day that Peter stepped out of the upper room in Jerusalem and started talking, um, the rest of the world probably began hating those same 3,000 people probably that day, if not two days later or a week later. The strange thing about Jesus is that he promised his followers from the very beginning, he promised that you'll be, you will suffer and be hated because he himself suffered and was hated. And the strangest thing about this of all is how many of us hear those words and say, great, where do I sign up? I mean, it's probably the worst recruiting line of all time um, to say, yeah, you're, they're going to hate you. You're going to be hated. Just count on it. <laughs> and we're just overjoyed to uh, join that group. Like, can I be in the club? I want to be hated. Well, all religions, you know, have their heroes and their villains and they have the false prophets and horrors. There's horror stories. I mean, people are always pointing out something the Mormons did or Scientologists did or Catholics did or Muslims did or the Jews did. Um, of course, you never hear anything bad about like um, the, the what atheists do right now. But um, I guess you do. You do hear about it. So it, it's it's every group. Let's let's. Let's stop pretending that everyone's not a sinner and only certain groups do it. Um, we know, we know that. That's the fundamental truth of uh, the whole Bible, really, is this turn away, turning away and turning back to God because of our, um, we just want to sin. We just want to follow our own rules and reject God. So um, it's not just uh, religions that have, <laughs> these these problems. I mean, even science has its own laundry list of evil experiments done on real people. And you can read up on studies performed that are every bit as awful and disgusting as what, uh, really, as what the Spanish conquistadors were doing in the New World to the natives. Um, in fact, I, I was going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, there's this Saint Bartolome de las Casas who was in the New World and he was writing letters back to Rome about what the Spanish explorers were doing. Um, and it's, it's revolting. I think I've talked about this in a previous one. Um, and it's, it's beyond revolting. It's, and he doesn't uh, sugarcoat it at all in his letters. So, you know, the worst thing of all is people coming over and doing this and saying, yes, yeah, so we're doing this in the name of God, when they are clearly doing it for their own advantage, their own... Um, greed or lust or, or wrath, whatever, pride, um, you know, the things that were being done, there's no just, it's, it's disgusting. Um, the same with these, these experiments that were done in science and, and um, 
there's some really interesting ones out there. And in fact, there was a show about, um, it was called something like, it was about the Unabomber, but this Harvard experiment they did on that man himself um, is just one of many experiments that somehow people got it in their head that it was okay to do this. Or another one would be the uh, Milgram shock therapy tests where uh, people were trying to figure out how could like the Germans have fallen into this spell to do these evil things. And the Milgram shock therapy test was one of those that, um, you know, there was a person with a lab coat on standing next to someone and they'd ask questions to someone in the other room. And if they got it wrong, the person had to shock them, shock the person who got the question wrong. And uh, people would shock the person like they they thought they weren't really shocking them. There's it was an actor, uh, but it was it was these these studies and there's far worse ones than that medical ones that people that were done um so even though you know science has its own dark history um no one says like all scientists are evil you know that it never i've never heard that that doesn't i wouldn't even it would it would perk up my ears if i ever heard that but i will hear i will definitely hear all priests are evil or alternatively religion poisons everything. In fact, I think that was the subtitle of one of Christian, Christopher Hitchens' books, something like that. Um, so there are different reactions to different religions, and the reaction to Christianity is typically a totally um, angry rejections. And there are a few reasons for this anger as I see it. The first reason is because the lofty goal of holiness in the church is an easy target. And, it, and so let me go into this. The church pronounces its holiness, and then it falls short. It falls short time and again. And ex expectedly, right on cue, its opponents have like a party over its demise, thinking that surely this scandal will be the event that leads to the end of every faith, of every follower. Um, the old familiar insults are hurled. You know, there's always these, these um, insults. Uh, maybe the most classic uh, insult uh, of all time is the Whore of Babylon, and it's a really great name for an insult, even if it's ridiculous, but um, that one gets thrown around. You see the atheists and everyone else piling on top. They're like rioting in the aftermath of the bad news about the Catholic Church. And unfortunately, those partying on the potential grave of the church end up being disappointed because it doesn't die. And this has been happening for uh, literally 20 centuries. So um, the church... It has to be held to a nearly unattainable standard, always, forever, because it can never aim lower than the life of Christ and the mysteries of faith, and they can't aim lower, they lose everything else. So, I mean, after all, if Jesus is the incarnation of God, fully human and fully divine, and he is the founder, and his words are the foundation, and his apostles and bishops are the teachers and keepers of the tradition, um, yet all of the people, the members are fully human. <laughs> There's not one that's fully divine, including Peter, you know, uh, even the apostles were regular Joes until they weren't, uh, until they were uh, apostles and then filled with the spirit and spreading the word all over. So while striving toward Jesus's excellence and his perfection, you know, we, they'll never achieve it. Or even if they get close, it won't be for long. Um, as I've mentioned before, perfection kills, but the never-ending work of progress, not perfection, must be carried forward when we fall, such as Simon the Cyrene carried the cross with Jesus. 
Even his fully human self needed help once. And miraculously, one of us normal humans had a chance to provide it. What a thing, uh, Simon and Cyrene, when I think of that, like he's just pulled in to help carry the cross of Jesus. It's like talk about being in the right place at the right time. Um, or maybe it was foreordained. I don't know. I'm not going to go there. Second, this anger, this anger about the church goes right back to the old issue of Jesus being divine in the first place. Because either he was God, as he said he was, or he was a lying lunatic. Um, there's the, the other option today. People are like, no, he was this cool teacher. Well, that, that one doesn't even make any sense at all if he was just a teacher. Because um, none of the books make any sense if that's where you're, you're at with that. Um, you know, if, if you believe that he was God, you have no alternative but to ask for faith. Um, if you choose lunatic, then the correct response is anger. Uh, I think that's why the response is so vitriolic against Jesus among those who reject the resurrection. When his followers turn out to be weak and fallen, opponents take it out on Christ by proxy of his hypocrite followers, which feels really good when your own religion needs to have a winner and a loser. What people always forget is that the church is a hospital for sinners, and it's not a museum of saints. So sometimes people outside of it struggle to understand why is it that people return to the church even after it experiences an embarrassing failure. Those who understand what a hospital is for, well, people go to the hospital when they need help. Um, and a hospital is, is to a church as sickness is to sin. So use an analogy. But anyone who expects to find only saints attending Holy Mass on Sunday will be seeking a church that doesn't exist now and has never existed before and never will exist. Um, they'd have better luck finding the saints they expect to find in an art history book or like Butler's Lives of the Saints or, or maybe in a graveyard. But they're not going to find them in the church itself. Third, Christians are playing a different game altogether than non-Christians, which causes confusion. As humans, we are wired for competition, strife, and victimization, as that is the religion our instinct wants us to have, a fight a blaming, a, a sport, a competition, an us-versus-them mentality, and using whatever means available to get an advantage. We like to watch that or be a part of it somehow. And that is where we naturally tend to go. And it's why Jesus is so radically different than what we expect from a Savior. We expect Thor to come down with the hammer, but we get a carpenter with a regular claw hammer. No, And, you know, we're like... Bonnie Tyler in 1986 singing, I need a hero, asking, Where have all the good men gone? Where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? I should have sang that, I know, but I didn't. Uh, we need a hero because we want or need a loser. For those who worship politics or youth or money or power, there's always a winner and loser in those realms. For science, there's even a right and a wrong answer. The most radical thing about Jesus is that he shatters the zero-sum game of the winner and the loser. He takes the impact. He is the scapegoat. He is the clear winner of everything, since he created it, but he loses on purpose. He takes the burden of our incessant blaming and fighting upon himself. The scapegoating ends with him. Correction, actually. It is supposed to end with him.
of course, you can see us squabbling among ourselves with in uh, different Christians. Uh, that just seems to be the case. We still want the zero sum, even though we don't need to. And quite a few of us have missed this message. We killed God on the cross, and sadly, I think we would likely do it again today if he returned in the same manner. But he won't return in the same manner, though, as he assured us with his own words. His resurrection should have ended the need for a scapegoat. The victory over death by Jesus' suffering, death and resurrection, amends our initial fall from grace. We are no longer in the zero-sum game of winners and losers because Jesus took one for the whole team, for all men and women, so that we may be forgiven for what our creaturely instincts guide us toward. And this makes it confusing to those outside of Christianity because it doesn't fit the normal mode of how we see the world. It's really radically, radically different.